this is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, Sonic Trust Fund. The recent history of the southern border of the United States is really something. Take this one acre of land on the western tip of the border between San Diego and Tijuana. In 1971, the two countries, Mexico and the US, decided to make a park there with the very promising name Friendship Park. It was a place where people who were separated by the border could go to celebrate weddings, baptisms, even take the occasional yoga class. And it was inaugurated by none other than First Lady Pat Nixon. And during the ceremony, she said she hoped, quote, there won't be a fence too long here, unquote. Today, the name Friendship Park sounds straight up Orwellian. There's barbed wire, surveillance cameras, armed border patrol, and instead of a fence, there's a tall, thick steel mesh so dense you can only touch fingertips with loved ones on the other side, a privilege only available on the weekend between the hours of 10 and 2. As the poet Marisa Tirado puts it, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Marisa Tirado grew up far from the border in Chicago, and yet the border divides her family too, in more ways than one. Take language. When she was growing up, received wisdom was that you shouldn't raise kids bilingual. So Tirado's parents didn't. As a result, they speak Spanish and their daughter does not. But she's been taking lessons. It's slow going, of course, and often frustrating, but she's always felt buoyed by the example of one person, Selena. The Texas-born and raised Queen of Tejano won a Grammy, the pinnacle of American musical fame, and then took her Grammy and Hollywood cachet to Mexico, making her a star on both sides of the border. And she sang and gave interviews in both English and Spanish. In 1995, Selena was murdered, but her example continues to reverberate. Marisa Tirado feels especially close to her because they both learned Spanish later. Now Marisa has come out with a debut collection. Selena didn't know Spanish either. And the first thing I wanted to know when I sat down to talk to her was the timeline. So you were two years old when Selena died. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering why so long after she died, in a sense, you know, like why you think she became so important to you? Yeah, I mean, growing up in a Hispanic household, the Jennifer Lopez biopic film from the 90s is very popular, very big staple in households for 90s Latino kids and still now. And I always recognized her songs growing up, but I grew up in a very white Chicago suburb. And so my culture wasn't necessarily always at my fingertips uh, unless I was downtown or spending time with extended family. And so 
when I began writing poetry, I found myself, we find ourselves, you know, always drifting into topics without realizing it. There's a topic you think might be interesting and then the topics you end up writing about. And, you know, once I started to approach the age of 23, which is the age Selena was when she passed away, I started to think about how she, to me, was a really strong symbol of a diaspora kid's, you know, dream which is to be fully accepted by both the motherland <laughs> and as well as the sort of uh, host land, you know, um, where you are still feeling out of place. And I know that a very common experience for many second gen and beyond kids is for them to feel like they're straddling two places. You know, they're the, the typical no sabo kid sort of experiences you no Spanish, but it's not good enough for, um, you know, your accent's very thick when you're with people in Mexico. And then here in the United States, um, especially in the 90s, it wasn't really a coveted, this will get you a job attribute to have, you know. So to me, she really represented this ideal of being fully embraced by two cultures. And what did that look like in practice? Like your interest in her like okay you listen to her music but was there also were there conversations happening with friends were you researching her online like what shape did your engagement with her take yeah I was researching her online I had a phase where I was watching a lot of her interviews in which she would dip in between English and Spanish or one of my favorite interviews of her she's on a daytime talk show in Mexico and she makes a mistake in Spanish. She literally makes up a word, diecuatro, <laughs> which is supposed to be catorce. Un catorce. And the whole audience laughs and she kind of you know, cutely hugs the host. And it's just such a tender moment that is so starkly different from a typical experience, which is someone correcting you harshly or making fun of you or or having some sort of exchange where it makes you feel a little more distant from a group of people. Yeah, I was struck also. I heard that clip also. And I was struck by how kind and willing both of them were. Like the audience on the one hand were just enamored with her and forgiving of like, you know, any of her, you know, slip ups. And then I think Selena also, I think she said something like, well, but you understood me, right? Yes. Where she was like, I I may be bumbling, but we're communicating, you know? And and I love that too, the, like the connection that they established beyond language in a way, you know? Um so you there's um you know the title poem in your collection Selena didn't know Spanish either where you write when i learned that first Selena didn't know Spanish either i entered a moment beyond my own poetics um can you tell me about that moment like what happened i think when there's a moment where when you learn that someone has a similar set of experiences for you that are quite a vulnerable set of experiences. You know, I grew up feeling very embarrassed that I didn't know Spanish. Um, I had lots of encounters where, you know, there was quite a bit of shame 
placed upon me, which is very common for other Hispanic, non-Spanish speakers to those who did. And then there was a season where, you know, my non-Hispanic friends started learning Spanish and were able to get lots of opportunities because of it and were able to have language skills advance beyond my own because of types of funding or um, accessibility. And when learning, because I didn't actually, I just assumed that Selena growing up always spoke fluent Spanish. And when I learned that she didn't, I kind of couldn't really write about it for a little bit. I think I try to build this academic idea of what my poetics are, what my personal beliefs are, what my definitions of what poetry is and how poetry works as a machine or as a um, bridge or as a, to quote Terrence Hayes, as a panic room. There's so many functions for it. I think there was not much I could do except be so shocked that someone I'd spent my life idealizing had this really vulnerable experience that I felt very alone in. And so it's very emotional. Uh, I still feel a lot of shame for not being fluent in Spanish. I still work really hard in it. I take Spanish lessons, but I'm learning that the more I learn Spanish, the sh- it's it's separate from the shame. It's separate from um, being fully tied back to what is lost in, you know, parts of my culture I've sort of lost. And so essentially to learn that Selena had such a vulnerable, similar feeling of rejection or shame and was able to triumph through, it was able to be herself enough, right? Those moments where she's saying, you understand me, right? Um, But also serve the Mexican population by representing them and bringing them amazing art and culture and fashion and music is a very exciting thing to witness as a poet. And that to me is a very poetic moment where you're healing, you're panicking, you're, (laughs) you know, you're, you're um, being your full vulnerable self on the page and, I think that that has to be, you know, written about beyond just music or biography. That's so interesting because I think indeed a lot of artists put conditions on themselves, you know, like only until I'm good enough at this or that do I deserve to share my art with other people or something. And so I, yeah, I can imagine that seeing someone that you admire so much and knowing that they didn't wait until they were perfect to do what they love and what people respond to, uh, that's quite powerful. I also wonder, because you were actually pushed, you know, as you write in the poem, beyond your own poetics and had to kind of rethink what poetry was for you. So how did it shift for you? I think it actually parallels really well with feeling unfluent in a language because I think that when one is wanting to learn something, whether it's how to read or how to write poetry, there are collections, poets, authors, subgenres of poetry that feel intimidating and feel like another language to readers. And as an educator, that's something I'm especially attentive to when I have students feel like they're uninvited or excluded 
by certain types of poetry, whether it's because they don't feel represented by it or whether it's because they are still working to break down this language, whether it's old language or um, a high vocabulary language. And so when I think about poetry, I think about this idea of translation in that when you are translating poetry, you can't fully translate the full poem. Something is always lost in that exchange. And it's a beautiful cost because the cost is that someone else is then invited to read this German poet, to read this Colombian poet. But there is still this loss, this loss within it, right? Um, yeah. There, whether it's a cultural metaphor or whether it's a type of slang that only a particular region of Puerto Rico knows, you know, it's an act of generosity is how I see it. And so I think when thinking about Selena and how she is bridging the gap, she is making Tejano music accessible to Americans and representing this people group out of Corpus Christi and beyond, right? And then is also bringing her sort of Hollywood Grammys prestige to Mexico and spending time with them and doing their talk shows and their press releases and beyond. And she was scheduled to, you know, on a world tour before she um, was murdered. So she would have been even more internationally known. Um, it's, it kind of makes me rethink poetry as something that has to be always thought of as generous and as accessible and inviting. Mm -hmm. And I think People sometimes think that's only depending on the type of word, you know, the, the high level of words you use. But I think it also has to do with um, whether we're being vulnerable about where we've come from, how much we know, how much we don't know. And that is something I do try to incorporate in my poetry as well. Yeah. I was wondering if you want to read the poem. Um, it's on page 22. Yes. I do have it. Okay. Selena didn't know Spanish either. I could have been bilingual, missed my father's sonic trust fund. You see, a local pedagogy said a brain twice as cultural makes a learning disability. Decades later, and my language is still chalked. Sometimes it suffocates me, like when I can hardly speak to my matriarchs. But when I'm sad, I play my favorite song. Because I have hunger, I have 28 years, I have Aztec blood, and biddy 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 bum bum grounds me in its chaotic trills and hip induction. When I learned that at first, Selena didn't know Spanish either. I entered a moment beyond my own poetics. Truth is, white kids get more gold stars per language, get corporate jobs in Mexico City. I watched them take family cruises down to meet my ancestors before I could. Do you know what it's like to be off limits from yourself? Bubbling under me has been some ugly, but now I'm thinking gorgeous lava. Nowadays, anger is my new prima. She is loca, she is perfect, and knows what's up. She breaks things to put them back right. I use a Learn Spanish through reggaeton app My first new words are rotura and caíta, but I'll pick it up as fast as my 14-year-old grandpa in a steel mill. Selena made Tejano cool in Japan. 
She was scheduled to tour the world before she was not safe, when she thought she was safe. Sometimes I think that if Selena was white like Madonna, she might still be alive. I wonder if people think about that. I pray her last words were in Spanish, colorful embroidery unraveling from her, each ancient sentence a burst into the light. Cada vez, cada vez, cada vez. Thank you. Um, yeah, just the way the poem opens, I thought was stunning. Um, I could have been bilingual, missed my father's sonic trust fund. And that, that second line, missed my father's sonic trust fund, it's so pleasing vowel-wise. Like, I don't know if it has all of them. And so I was thinking that it's kind of funny because you're proving and disproving your point, you know, like, or you're almost flaunting, I feel like. Like, yeah, I may have missed <laughs> out on my father's sonic trust fund, but I created my own sonic wealth, you know? So I thought that was really beautiful. Um, the other thing that I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about... Toward the end of the poem, you talk about anger and you talk about your anger bubbling under you as gorgeous lava. I mean, ugly, you say first, and then you correct yourself and say, you know, now uh, gorgeous lava. And after that, I feel like the tempo picks up and like some heat mm -hmm. is created and you come up with these burns, you know. Uh, for instance, you're talking about learning Spanish. I'll pick it up as fast as my 14-year-old grandpa in a steel mill. And I felt like it was such a like mic drop moment, like, you know, because it's social criticism, mm -hmm. like there's a cause for anger, but you also managed to compress like a whole story and a whole societal phenomenon in just like one line. And so I'm interested in how you work anger into a poem in a way that works within the poem rather than run away with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something I have been considering a lot recently because anger has become a daily part of me rediscovering and reconnecting to my culture. Because with each moment of delight in which, let's say, I learn a new word during a Spanish lesson or I have a conversation in Spanish with my grandmother who's from Mexico successfully, there's a coinciding feeling of rage <laughs> as to how I wish that things had always been this way, like that I had always felt this delight, had always been able to witness my grandmother's humor because humor is the, she speaks English too, but humor is the last thing to translate. And so I didn't know she was so funny <laughs> uh, until gaining better language skills. And so it it's hard to reconcile at times. And when writing, it does condense it into um, in poetry. I, I'd say that I the way that my writing process works is that my poems shrink by about a page by the time that they actually make it into um, a final draft. And I think it is often the moments of anger that don't necessarily need to be pared down in a way that's silencing it, but more so thought of in a way that doesn't let my anger overpower me, though I want anger to be a part of this poem. And anger is a theme in a lot of my 
poetry, to be quite frank. I don't want it to seem or to be that it consumes me because that is something that I work every day for it to not consume me. I think it's more important to focus on the instances where I am regaining aspects of who my ancestors were, regaining aspects of how my family history has functioned so that I can navigate what they would have liked me to hold on to. Because not everything is held on to. Um, and there's some beautiful things that are added to each generation away from something like a motherland. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you also write, do you know what it's like to be off limits from yourself? And to be honest, I don't know what that's like. So how would you answer your own question? I'd say it's it's kind of like watching a conversation happening, like being a fly on the wall, because especially with today's pop culture or today's economy, people are very eager to grasp aspects of ethnic culture that have been denied to the population that owns the culture itself. So for example, I mean, there's low reaching stuff that are very important still, like hoop earrings being very cultural to Black women and to Hispanic women or to Chola culture and having that be a big fashion trend over the last several years. But I remember growing up and me and some of my Hispanic friends who have shared similar stories weren't really allowed to wear giant hoop earrings or with red lipstick because it would give an impression in something like a white suburb that could detriment me and would arguably detriment me. But then there's moments where it it's especially hard where, you know, I'll have friends that, you know, are, are really fluent in Spanish now that aren't Hispanic. And it's very fun and exciting to be able to travel with them and to have someone really excited about my culture because it's fun to be able to talk with them about Selena and those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, I do feel a, a bit without, you know, um, I do feel that sense of being off limits from myself. Um My parents speak Spanish and the worry was often that if me and my siblings spoke Spanish and learned Spanish, that that would just harm us in the long run. And that is the rhetoric they were given. And so they were being good parents. They're being protective parents. But it's kind of the opposite now where everyone's wanting, you know, a trilingual nanny or everyone's signing their children up for schools that learn Spanish, especially. Um, so, yeah, it. It's it's kind of a slow burn. Absolutely. <laughs> slow burning at times. It's complicated too. Yeah, it also makes me think of that thing that people have been throwing out on social media, like, you know, what's what's the thing that is well regarded when you're wealthy and poorly regarded when you're poor? And an answer that a lot of people give is bilingualism, you know? Mm -hmm. Um yeah. So, yeah, I can really imagine that it's like, oh, now it's cool all of a sudden to speak Spanish. It's just not for me, I guess, you know. Oh, absolutely. Or if, um, you know, think of um, like a first gen immigrant from, you know, Mexico who has their degrees in accounting. Like my grandma was an accountant, but 
her accent definitely counted against her, even though she's bilingual. So there's even strict rules within that, whereas sending maybe a white passing person to go work corporately in Venezuela or whatever, I would argue that they're viewed as much more valuable, which is hard to swallow, Yeah, to be honest. It's like the immigrant-expat dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, you know, you, you, you just said that your parents were told that it would be dangerous for you, you know, or like detrimental if they would raise you bilingual, so they didn't. But I'm wondering, I mean, emotion and language are so tied together. So I'm wondering if there were moments, I don't know, when your dad was like in a lyrical mood or he was angry or something, you know, that the Spanish would come out? I mean, I see him speak Spanish the most when he's with his mother. And I kind of love watching him interact with his mother because um, she's, you know, very typical, strict matriarch who keeps the kitchen clean and who is so funny and witty and stuffs you with rice. (laughs) Um, And when I see him in her kitchen, he's always sitting in her little, you know, like yellow lit kitchen with tile, just being fed play after plate of food. And I just see him as an 11 year old after basketball practice. And it's always such a beautiful moment because he's so joyful and happy. And since his family are the only people he really spoke Spanish with, I think when he speaks Spanish, I see that a more youthful, like childlike version of himself, which I'll always really treasure. And he's a very jolly person in general. So it's not a huge difference in his everyday, but in the sense of, I do see this like youthfulness that he he looks so safe and so happy and so taken care of. And my parents are very proud of their culture and they love their culture. My mom is from, um, she's New Mexican, so she's Hispanic and indigenous. And um, she treasures that Southwestern side. And when her family speaks Spanish, there's kind of this interesting, they're from San Luis Valley. My grandparents were born in Manassa and Antonito. And she grew up in Española, which is like the lowrider capital of the U.S. in northern New Mexico. They have this kind of twang to their Spanish. It's almost like a Minnesotan lengthening, like, híjole. Like, it's a really, it, it, it's it's not like Mexican Spanish, which is very um, kind of boppy and sing-songy. It has this kind of country sound to it. And so that's really fun, too, because there's all these crazy exclamations. Sometimes I think half these words are made up on these expressions. (laughs) Um, But that in itself is like a very delightful um, moment because my cousins and I will use it jokingly, you know, at times and we're exclaiming things. And um, in that we are treasuring, you know, our parents and our grandparents and our language. Absolutely. Um, And I'm wondering for like people listening who like you also didn't grow up speaking their their parents' language. Um, what is it like to finally learn it then? I'd say that there is a lot of baggage. My partner and I actually, when we moved to Spain, I, we both had a similar number of Spanish, years of Spanish under our belt because he grew up in a very Hispanic environment. 
but he's not Hispanic too. Or he's not Hispanic. Right, right, right. So when we were taking Spanish lessons at the same time, I found myself getting frustrated more easily, um, getting sensitive more easily, feeling shameful more easily. Whereas I sensed that he, when, when, you know, encountering a mistake kind of just picked up where he left off on and happily fixed the mistake. And for me, I always felt that there was much more weight to each mistake I made because though I was growing and am growing in my language skills, each mistake was a frustration as to why do I not know this already? I feel kind of robbed. And at the same time, I feel a little bit of shame because I have had many encounters with Spanish speaking Hispanics where, you know, it's a very common thing to be shamed and asked, why, well, why didn't your parents teach you? Don't they want you to learn? Why don't you know? The blame is placed on you mm. and you have to kind of deal with it. Um, many times, even, you know, with employees at restaurants or small businesses who speak Spanish, when they see me, they start speaking to me in Spanish and I try really hard. <laughs> and there's this look that they always give. And it's this look of shock or disappointment or confusion. Mm. And so to be learning it, I am, there are moments like that, but then there are also moments while learning Spanish where it's just, I feel like a superhuman. I'm listening to music that I've always, always loved. And suddenly I know what they're saying and I just start crying. Um, you know, I feel like I knew a number of the Selena songs translated already just from growing up, but even listening to something kind of fun, like Bad Bunny, um, he has a Puerto Rican accent, which my grandfather had because he was from Puerto Rico. So it's a little more recognizable. Mm -hmm. um, but even being able to pick up on that has been wild. <laughs> it, it, it feels like I suddenly have a, have another power that lets me, you know, turn invisible or see through walls you know it's it's very exciting absolutely yeah and it's also like you know all of a sudden you have twice as much world right because mm -hmm. like you can now read i mean you would need you know a million lifetimes to read all the books that exist in english and now you know there there is like an equal amount of books in spanish that like are yours also uh and it's interesting during the writing process, too. I've actually actively tried to write poetry while learning Spanish because the hope is that I do become fluent. But I'm very curious in this in-between stage where my poetry can be this like ruffled, unpolished Spanglish that might not be fully correct, but is still fully honest in that mistakes. That's been one way I've sort of been coping through things like shame is to kind of write poetry that may be incorrect <laughs> in its Spanish, but it's almost kind of tracking it in a fun way, too, because my Spanish has improved. That is so interesting. I also wonder, you know, often when we know a language really well, it also allows us to hide behind it, mm -hmm. you know, to become really cerebral or to play all these kind of smart games, you know, and not not just say what you mean or or kind of show your your heart because that's more scary you know and so i'm wondering do you feel yourself be more honest in spanish because you kind of don't have the tools to you know make this whole elaborate mask yes i think you are pretty naked when you're speaking a new language yes. <laughs> i think that's a common experience uh -huh. <laughs> so 
I am a little sweaty. <laughs> I speak Spanish. <laughs> I, I always am a little shaky or even I was in Mexico for my honeymoon. Mm-hmm. We were in the back of the cab and I was tired from a day of doing nothing. And <laughs> <laughs> the taxi driver obviously looked at me and asked where we're going. And I was kind of fumbling over my words and then my husband quickly gave him directions in Spanish. His Spanish is phenomenal, but there isn't the shame attached because we have such a deep trust. And I know his background and his history, and I know his love of the culture and the reasons for the love of the culture and his agenda for that love. Um, there are situations, though, where I've experienced not that in being with non-Hispanic people who speak Spanish. And there's kind of this awkward sometimes very frustrating competitiveness I've noticed. And it's kind of this colonial attitude of, I like this, this is mine now, whether it's the language, um, whether it's a fashion style or music or Selena I've even seen. And it's just very odd because when I look at other cultures or Usually when a black or a brown person <laughs> looks at other cultures, there's less of this idea of wanting to own something or to be the best at this new exciting culture they're learning about. And I don't quite know what to do when, you know, when when around those who are excited to out Spanish a Hispanic <laughs> person or to challenge my making of a Hispanic food, which has happened before, or to challenge, you know, different pieces of weird cultural trivia that to me represent history or love or relationships. But sometimes I wonder if to these, in these situations, if it represents kind of winning and ownership, kind of like, um, you know, something that they can pride themselves on and feel more powerful because of. Yeah, like scoring points or something. And, you know, I, I think um, nothing will humble you like learning a foreign language, mm-hmm. but humility can be, I mean, you're talking about these people who lack in the humility department, it sounds like. Um, but I think humility can just be a beautiful feeling when you embrace that, mm-hmm. when you don't let it be humiliation, but rather mm. celebration of how wonderful you think a culture is and how happy you are to be traveling in the wake of that culture. And so I'm wondering, like, what are some moments where you are celebrating, yeah, the the humble stance in which you stand towards Spanish? I feel like when you are in a place where you can, I can be kind of my broken Spanglish, no sable kid, self, you kind of feel like you're being carried by others in that humility, because humility in this case is saying, I don't know, someone else help me or carry this for me. Or if it's a stranger at a business that I'm trying to communicate with, that generosity is extended back, that they're going to help me figure out what I need to do or where I need to go. And in that, though, we didn't have a perfect language connection, we still had a connection of understanding not a language, but of what it means to be someone who doesn't have all the tools needed to succeed in an environment or all the knowledge to be the strongest person um, in that room or in that situation. 
I want to kind of take the conversation into a different direction. Um, you said that your mom is from New Mexico and that she's like of Spanish indigenous heritage. And so I, I'm just wondering, like, you know, how did New Mexico show up in your childhood? Like, did you spend a lot of time there? Like, what did you do when you were there? Like, you know, what is your connection to New Mexico? Yeah, uh, we grew up going there every year for, you know, spring break, Christmas, those sorts of things. And though I only have one sibling, I have a large collection of cousins that all lived there and that I grew up with and that I see as my siblings and have very sibling relationships with. And so most of them lived in that region growing up and still live there today. And I always grew up in Chicago. So once again, <laughs> I was uh, on the outside of the culture looking in, but was being told this is your culture too. And though I don't have the same set of experiences that my mother had growing up in Española, owning a feed store, or my cousins, you know, living close to Santa Fe Plaza or living in Albuquerque next to a Fiesta balloon site launch, I still was exposed to the warmth of New Mexico and the ties to the earth that New Mexicans often really prioritize, as well as um, most of our time was actually spent in southern Colorado, right on the border in a small town called Antonito, in which my grandparents own and my tia also owns uh, beef cattle ranches. And so we grew up going to things like the branding, we built a treehouse there, um, be around animals, be in the fields. And all of my cousins are artists. Uh, some are mixed media. One is a filmmaker, one is a musician. And so to be around such a rich creative culture so many times and to kind of add on that extra layer of being close to the land, being in the land when we're at a place like the ranch, I think was foundational to who I am and how I see my poetry and whether it's the landscape itself, like some of the poems in my book, or to the stories that existed 30 years ago in Española, um, like with my mother that I've heard about and tried to reproduce, those I think remain centric in how I tried to reconnect with my culture since once again, I didn't live there. This is the closest I've ever lived there hmm. um, it, here, being here in Boulder, Colorado, and it already feels good <laughs> <That's> <laughs> to amazing. be in the Southwest. So. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I, I thought what was so interesting reading your poetry collection is that whenever you wrote about New Mexico, it became very tactile, like very mm -hmm. physical. And I'm wondering, uh, do you have a theory about why? Yeah, I think um, growing up in a Chicago suburb, everything around you was sort of built in the last 30 years and nothing is ancient <laughs> and nothing was touched by your ancestors, you know, and to be somewhere like in a little town that's next to Alamosa and Manasseh where my grandparents were born and where my great-grandfather was a shepherd and San Luis Valley, you know, you can't help but think this is the exact same, you know, dirt from a couple miles away could have blown over here where I'm sitting on this ranch in the last hundred years and I'm sitting in that now. Or when you're in Europe, everything has an ancient feel, but it's still man-made. And I feel like in New Mexico and Southern Colorado, everything has that same kind of ancient feel 
where you feel sort of romantic or you feel really in awe of what may have happened there. I feel that when I'm around the nature in Santa Fe and in Colorado, because these cacti are old and strong and ancient um, and way more like Southern New Mexico and Arizona area, but like the, this, the desert brush and even the ranch home that my grandmother lives on has this sort of distinct feel that everything that's happened in our family over the last several decades has taken place in this little tiny square. Like nothing has spread out too much or whenever I'm in Española, we'll sit somewhere and wait for a train of lowriders to pass by as, you know, my mom will tell stories <laughs> about her time growing up there or we'll go and drive to the feeds. Her house burnt down, but we'll drive to the feed store that her family used to own and all the kids, seven of them worked at. And there's still, you know, this old sign up that says Marquez Livestock that no, whoever lives there has no idea what that is. Um, but it's weird that they haven't taken it down. And there is this kind of sort of stuck in nature, like nature kind of conceals and hardens and keeps things in place. And I really appreciate that about that region. I was wondering if you want to read a poem that is about a lot of the things that you're talking about now. It's the one on page two, Soaring Above Marquez Livestock, which is actually just the last thing you mentioned about that <laughs> yeah. sign, you know, the Marquez sign. Yes, absolutely. This is about um, a poem I wrote on the way home from a trip to the ranch. Soaring above Marquez livestock. In seat B23, I tuck my legs like a calf fresh with life. The window tilts me, frames sagebrush dotting Rockies, whose spotted desert hide colors outside stories in state lines. This morning, I watched an old puppeteer of one-third my name hum like a well-oiled machine and straighten an old fence between the bulls and abessies with a swift kick. We didn't cross the border. The border crossed us, she said, spitting to soil owned for a dozen decades. Soil and sun, my cousin spent two days getting dark in before getting kicked out of the bookstore for it, a tale of two cities snatched from his amber hands. This is why my parents sat at our oak table one night, young and skittish in their skin, mulling over my second language. I still blush when I can't roll my tongue along the top of my teeth to pronounce my own name. When I sleep, I become a hot air balloon from the fiesta every fall. Albuquerque sky, birthing a colorful herd, hooves pressing old stories of our foundation. Stories now 10,000 feet away, but once close enough to drift into each night as soon as the moon would blink. <laughs> Thank you. I really love this poem. Um, I also love like how many cows there are <laughs> in your collection. <laughs> you know, in the in the opening line of this poem, you know, you're on the plane and you tuck your legs like a calf fresh with life. And then there was, of course, the cattle ranch that you look down on. And there are a lot of cow skulls in uh, your poems. And then this wonderful image, um, Albuquerque's sky birthing a colorful herd. Yeah, you were talking a little bit about the connection that you feel to the land in New Mexico because it has seen so much and it is so similar in many ways um, to 100 years ago. 
Um, and you have this beautiful line, um, you know, back to the Albuquerque sky, birthing a colorful herd, hooves pressing old stories into our foundation, stories now 10,000 feet away. Um, I, I'm really interested in like pressing old stories in our foundation. Can you talk about your foundation and what are the stories that have been pressed into your foundation? I mean, I think that my foundation is mainly listening to my parents and their siblings. They each have five to seven siblings tell stories. And it almost feels like they're eating at the table and they'll be dropping like these little, <laughs> you know, nougats on the ground and I'm collecting them like berries. And all my cousins are beside me collecting them frantically like berries. Cause as I mentioned, they're all artists. And so in a way, you know, they are all storytellers and really value our culture too, and have done phenomenal jobs with their mediums, preserving our culture. And then it's like, you know, we take what we have and we kind of make a little bit of a suspect board drawing yarn together or, one of my cousins has done a great job trying to do genealogy and ancestry studies, trying to figure out our paper trails, which especially if you have any kind of potentially native background are always erased, you know, within a generation or two that you're not going to find a filing cabinet or an archive with that half the time. And, you know, and then amidst all the trauma, which causes these blank spots and these repressions, trying to figure out what actually happened in the seventies and the eighties. Um, and that's kind of, I think, why a lot of us do lean on the land, because the land has this sense of mystery that perhaps it can educate us or share with us how our ancestors functioned and who they were and what their stories were if we can't figure it out for ourselves. Like, I feel that sense that the land holds so much and that though it's not like a, you know, obviously a verbal exchange, there's kind of this sense or this energy that you can feel that you feel like um, you understand a little bit more of what it means to be yourself and what it means to be this particular person with this particular blood and this particular um, patchy documentation of the self. Because if the government and our archivists aren't tracking our history we and keeping it, you know, safely in like a, a drawer of all these certificates or paper trails, like how else are we going to track back in time and try to piece that together? It's the land, it's these small stories. It's just going back. I mean, that's why I always go back to Espanol or love spending time at that ranch is because at least sitting there, I'm slowly imagining what it might have been like to be there at that time, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about stories that way as kind of like the only way in to connecting you with, you know, what happened before, because there will not be an official record. And like in that sense, the stories are really beautiful and a really mm -hmm. generative uh, thing. But I also found many or like a few spots in your collection where stories are suspect. Um, mm -hmm. So, for instance, in, in, you know, in this poem, the speaker of the poem is sitting on the um, plane looking down, you know, sagebrush dotting Rockies. And then you write, whose spotted deserts hide colors outside stories and state lines. And so I feel like here, maybe stories has a little bit of a more ominous ring, you know, because state lines are a kind of story also. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you write in this poem, 
we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. So am I, maybe I'm totally reading it wrong, but I thought that stories here were like, I don't know, the ways in which yeah, like your own story gets overwritten by like an official story. Yeah, absolutely. I think when considering how something like a very academic historical documentation and archive of, let's say, what Española, New Mexico is, which trust me, I'm doing research on it now and there's not a lot, which is shocking. Um, and it's it's very numerical. It's populations, it's dates. Um, they don't include any stories unless they have all the details of who and when and where. And I think when considering oratory history and inheritance, which is much more native there's not as much of an obsession with at what day, at what time, what the socioeconomic level of a person was who participated in it, how many, exactly how many miles they traveled, what the degrees of temperature were on the day. And I think it allows more of the warmth and humanity of a story to sort of come through when we're gaining stories that are oratory. Mm -hmm. And I think a good symbol for that kind of rigid storytelling of the former is a, a state line, is a, you know, a country borderline. And with a country's borders, it's officially making a distinction within the same mile of who belongs to what on either side of that border. And that's so rigid. It's also disruptive to stories. I mean, when people ask me where my mother's from, I don't know whether to say New Mexico and Colorado. And I don't think it really matters because for those who are from that area, they know El Norte and they know San Luis Valley. And that has less to do with state lines as it does to do with, you know, what your grandparents are like and what your connection to art is or what kind of food you love you know yeah i i was wondering if we can read one last poem um page eight how to make an adobe brick um yeah i love that poem <laughs> there's a me too I, I and i love like poems in the shape of something else you know so anyway i was excited about this one um, so yeah, if you want to launch, uh, straight into it. Awesome. Okay. Um, how to make an adobe brick. Too much clay results in shrinking. It will crack unless it warps. Too much sand creates breakage, a tendency to erode quickly after the first desert rain. Adobe can only be evaluated by its strength. This is not a metaphor. Can it keep out coyotes? Will it hold off the militia? Avoid making adobe when your heart is weak or when blood needs spilling. The bricks will not need paint. Our sun stains it. Refrain from soils containing alkali, gypsum, stones from another's rock garden. Use tin-lined, strong-willed, seen some shit, heavy-duty molds. The light will moderate. Straw cut very short will create aesthetically pleasing adobe, especially when combined with certain pale colors and micaceous material, like plaster, like closure. How many times have you watched your foundation crack? 
Are your hands filthy enough? Perhaps you notice your bricks' air pockets, but continue to lay them as heat pops a blister on your neck. Your brick must always be 10 by 4 by 14 inches, parallel, perfect, given peepholes here or there, a weed mulling toward light with ambition. Yeah, I really love this poem. I love like the kind of bread and butter practicality of it on the one hand, and then how that kind of allows for this soaring spirituality. Is that the right word? You know, you're in touch with so many deep things. Um, I'm just so interested in like, what is it about the dryness of an instruction manual, you know, that makes you see poetry? Actually, um, I had a phase that I went through and honestly, I'm starting to return to pretty hardcore now too, in that to sort of spark poetry writing and self prompts, I would look through nonfiction coffee table type books and in my parents' house and in my family's houses, most of those books are like, you know, Southwest from the seventies, or I just got a great wedding gift from my cousin, like on, on Malinche and, uh, or it's, you know, a Santa Fe tourist magazine <laughs> talking about this cathedral tour. And, um, I think that seeing how each of those publishers presents the same culture is fascinating because some are keen to present it as a sort of native Disneyland when talking about something like the plaza in Santa Fe, which is highly problematic, but still is very symbolic to a lot of things and holds some culture, but then really kind of also distorts it or robs it of what it's supposed to be too. And then other books seem to be very mechanical. And so, and other, and then other books are very lore based where it almost feels like an, you know, an, uh, an oratory type story on paper. And when thinking between all those different genres and being pulled this way and that, I think that's what sort of brought together this idea of the Dobie brick in that when so many things or people are after whether it's for good or for bad, your culture, whether it's to celebrate it or to learn from it or to conquer it or to be the best at it or to win at it. Um, those who, to who the culture belongs to feel very pulled in many different directions on how they're supposed to be, who they're supposed to be or how they're supposed to be in relationship to their culture, whether it's me filling out a job application for maybe a more diversity-based hire at an institution and how I'm going to present myself all the way to how do I present myself when I'm at a book club of only POC women and how much culture is commodified these days. It really makes you feel like you're building something for yourself that has to keep out coyotes and militia <laughs> and heavy, you know, random desert rains and you're still building it frantically. But because I am a person of diaspora, I'm still trying to figure out what is actually in the ingredients of how to make an adobe bread. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I'm putting in some of the right things and some of the wrong things. And some things are stronger than others. Um, some things melt, you know, more quickly than others or dry out more than others. And so 
it's kind of just about me trying to live within all these tensions while still trying to self-preserve and self-build in some possible way. And have you actually learned to make Adobe bricks? I haven't, but my cousin who's a filmmaker, he just came out with a wonderful short film that's getting attention called Baka the Kid. And the actual set is in an Adobe home, an Adobe hut. And so he actually knows and hired an Adobe artist to come and build it from scratch. But it's an art form. It's it's not easy at all. Yeah, what I also love what I also love about like a instruction manual poem is the precision of language in there. Often when I'm trying to fix something around my apartment because the super is not terribly responsive, mm -hmm. you know, you end up looking things up on YouTube, right? And and I'm always just amazed at like the linguistic wealth that is out there when it comes to talking about technical things. You know what I mean? Like yes. all these verbs often about things that you can do that I've never heard of. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, what kind of tools or like what sources have you used to make sure that you use the right language for this Adobe Brick instruction manual? Yeah, a lot of it comes directly from the source. So this was an article from like an old magazine I found somewhere pretty old that that was interviewing an Adobe artist and they kind of went through the process and I just borrowed a lot of the language from the kind of sediments and materials they used to the amount of energy it sounded like they were spending on it. And then I watched some videos as well on YouTube of people physically making it and saw that it was this really cool combination of labor, like hard farm labor and art, very careful sculpting and pottery. And so it would be very arduous and aggressive in one moment and then be very tender and detailed in the next. And that was something that I also felt without being able to put words to it, very understood by yes. <laughs> um, in how I walk through life, one moment being so arduous and difficult, and then the same task somehow being very gorgeous and delightful and gentle, you know? Yeah. I mean, also there's, besides the purely practical, there are these layers of lore, these instructions like Avoid making adobe when your heart is weak or when blood needs spilling. And and I'm I was interested in that because, you know, we were talking earlier about how the landscape is often kind of the repository of stories and of like ancestral knowledge in a way, you know. And so I'm wondering about like, you know, like there's so much knowledge in language, right? Like mm -hmm. often when you look at etymology, you can kind of peel back those layers and go back to like what were people thinking hundreds of years ago. But of course you have that also in knowledge about how to make an adobe brick, for instance, right? There's yeah. like millennia probably of knowledge mm -hmm. embedded in those instructions. And so I'm wondering, like, first of all, is this real lore, you know, like that you're not supposed to make an adobe brick when your heart is weak or when blood needs spilling? Uh, and just like in general, I'm curious about, like, did you ever feel like you touched upon knowledge that is ancient, you know, that's embedded in that process? 
I mean, what comes to mind first is this idea of building and creating something even when you are facing an attack or an erasure or even a a power struggle and to be making something like Adobe or doing something like preserving a culture while all these forces are against you. And I was kind of interested in this idea of what it means to do it, not when you are suffering from something like heartbreak and depression or not when you're suffering from something like jealousy or revenge, because to kind of engage with your ancestry with an energy of spite is robbing yourself of something. And it is letting colonial powers win. And it is letting things like racism and oppression win. And though I think to acknowledge my past is to also acknowledge revenge and anger and sadness and loss. Those are a part of my history. To reduce it only to that is creating an an entirely extra loss. And so to really get into the nitty gritty, exciting, yet dirty, yet arduous, but joyful process of regaining some of your like cultural practices that previous generations have done that weren't directly passed down to you. It helps inform how I am proceeding in my life from this point forward. Marisa Tirado just published her debut collection, titled Selena Didn't Know Spanish Either, winner of the 2021 Robert Phillips Chapbook Prize, selected by Benjamin Garcia. Marisa Tirado is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and the founder of an international collective called Protest Through Poetry which provides seminars, publishing opportunities, and creative community for activist poets of color. She teaches at the University of Colorado Boulder. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikkefus and Erik van der Weste. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 